I'm Dave Rubin, and joining me is a former senior advisor to President Donald J. Trump and author of the brand new book, The New York Times, number one best-selling book. We're going to have to talk about that in just a second. <laughs> Breaking history. Jared Kushner, good to see you, my friend. How's it going? Doing great. Thank you for having me on, David. I am glad to be sitting here with you. First off, they put you at number one in The New York Times. <laughs> I don't think The New York Times likes you very much, and they did it. How does that feel? Because they didn't put me on there at all for my last book, so this is a little bit of, a uh, little, little tug here. You know, it, it is funny that it's given this height um, as a goal to attain, but I think that is the goal that all the people who are authors try to attain, so it's nice to have achieved it, but you try not to give it too much value as well. So, But it was kind of funny. They, they wrote a review that was pretty uh, unhinged in terms of how they... <laughs> characterized the book and, right. and actually once that happened the sales of the book started going up immediately right and i think it's because what's in the book contradicts a lot of what they wrote about trump and his administration for four years and so they obviously didn't want to see it in existence or want people to read uh, a point of view that differs uh, from theirs they are not big fans of that that is for <laughs> sure i do appreciate the fact that your book matches our local set pretty pretty perfectly as you know i just got back mm -hmm. on the grid so you released the book came out last week of August, right? Mm -hmm. So I did not get to see any of your press around this or anything. Uh, so I'm going into this pretty pretty blind. And when I've mentioned you on the show, we, we've gotten to know each other a little bit personally over the last couple months since I moved down here. And uh, when, you, when I mentioned you on the show, I often say people don't know what his voice sounds like. They see him, <laughs> but they don't know what his voice sounds like. So let's let's do the beginning stuff first. I'm a Long Island guy, you're a Jersey guy. We have a similar background somewhat similar ages. Uh, tell people a little bit of the, the Jared Kushner growing up story. I thought you were gonna ask me to sing or something <laughs> <laughs> with that buildup. So uh, no, it's, it's great. And obviously it's been great having you and, and, and uh, your family down in Florida now, your extended family. Um, so basically I grew up in New Jersey and had a lot of different experiences. I try to write it very quickly in the book, right? It's like doing your obituary, your obituary <laughs> in like 5,000 pages, yeah. trying to just condense it. but. Uh, basically grew up in a in a great suburb, had uh, you know, amazing parents, and uh, just write about the journey and my life. I, I write uh, about obviously you know starting businesses in college and and whatnot, um, and then I, I write about how um, afterwards I was in law school and business school. My um, Sorry, I'm not used to like nice questions. Like that. <laughs> no, You're used... freaking out because I'm not trying to get you. I'll get you in a second. I'm I mean, used to the here, killers man. coming yeah. at me, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. too it's too nice. <laughs> yeah. um, but the uh, but basically, I, I write in the book about uh, my upbringing. I was in uh, law school at NYU and business school after graduating Harvard, and uh, I was working at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Uh, I thought I'd be a prosecutor, and then uh, my father got arrested, and and I realized I didn't want to be a prosecutor anymore. I <laughs> kind of saw what happens when uh, prosecutors have uh, a lot of political ambition and unchecked power, and I didn't think I could I could be in that position. Um, and, uh, and then I write through what that experience was like, how it changed my view of the world. I, I met a lot of people through that experience. And I went to my father's business. Uh, you know, it was a real time of, of problems. And you know, really through, through that period, that three-year period, and then uh, the three-year period of the financial downturn, that's where I learned a lot of lessons that, um, that, that really taught me a lot. And then I write about how I was very fortunate uh, when I was in New York to meet a great, uh, great, beautiful woman named uh, Ivanka, who 
uh, we had an interesting courtship. Uh, she she said yes, which was uh, really great. I got the permission <laughs> from her dad. And uh, do, you, do you go to the dad first on that one? Um, so I, I actually give a little bit of this story, but uh, after I didn't really spend too much time with him for about the first year that we were dating on and off, and mm. um, then we were getting serious. And so Ivanka said, you know, my dad, you got to go talk to him because if not, he's going to start thinking, you know, you're not interested. And so. I reach out to him and I say, you know, hi, Mr. Trump. Uh, you know, this is Jared Kushner. I'm, you know, I'm dating Ivanka. I'd really like to come over and spend some time together. I didn't know what the hell I was going to say. Yeah. And he says, that's great. Why don't we have lunch tomorrow? I'm like, oh man, that's that's tough. So I go over to Trump Tower and uh, we have lunch in the Trump Grill. And what was funny about him is he would never go out for lunch. So Ivanka was very surprised because he would always have lunch by his desk, or huh. you know, he he didn't like to waste the time of going out. So we go in Trump Grill and Trump Tower. He's got Trump security guards around. <laughs> Trump and napkins, Trump glasses, Trump burger, thing. Trump yeah. loaf, everything. So, and uh, you know, I said, "Look, you know, Ivanka and I were getting more serious now, and uh, you know, she started a process of converting to Judaism." And he turns to me and says, "Well, why does she have to convert to Judaism? Why can't you convert?" And I said, "Well, actually, that's a really good question. Yeah, Nobody's good. asked me that question, yeah. uh, but you know, we've been studying, and this is you know how we feel when we go." And he says, "That's great, you know." I've been in New York real estate all my life. Everyone thinks I'm Jewish. All my friends are Jewish. And, uh, and from that point, he was very supportive. And then he goes into another thing, which was funny that I, I tell in the book, where he says, uh, you know, Ivanka right now, she's in an amazing place in her life. You know, a lot of my friends call, they, you know, they all respect her. He says, but, you know, Tom Brady's a good friend, and he, he's been dying to take her out. And so I turned to him and I said, well, if I was her, I'd go out with Tom Brady. <laughs> And he looks at me, maybe not, maybe getting my, my uh, self-deprecating humor, or maybe it was serious. And he basically looks and says, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it was good. But we, wow, we, so you beat out Tom Brady for Ivanka. In, in his version of events. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's close was, enough to yeah, something so, that, that so. sounds right. Uh, can you just back up a little bit and uh, explain a little bit more about some of the stuff with your dad and how that woke you up and then kind of changed the course correction for you? Because I, I think that's a super interesting part of the story here. Sure. Um, so I write about this in the book as condensed as I can. Yeah. But basically, my father was a major Democrat donor. New Jersey is a big Democrat state. Um, he was uh, involved in a family dispute. It was a you know, business that he built up. He brought his siblings in. And uh, basically, uh, he was prosecuted for three years. They couldn't really find much. But then uh, he did something a little... Uh, maybe a little overreacting, uh, kind of to get maybe revenge on them for causing so much pain to him, which, you know, human beings make mistakes. And uh, he, he basically uh, sent a, a tape of, of his brother-in-law, who was always having affairs with a, a prostitute, uh, and then sent it to his sister just basically to say, screw you. And, yeah. um, and then at the time, you know, his lawyers knew about it. They, they didn't think that it was a crime, but he didn't know that his siblings were then cooperating witnesses with the government. So, they arrested him. Uh, Chris Christie was the prosecutor at the time. Um, it was uh, he made a big deal of it. Uh, you know, very ambitious. You know, he ultimately ran on to be, yep. you know, governor. And um, you know, after that happened, my father, I read about the experience. It was very reflective about it. Said, look, I, I I sinned before God, before man. I made a mistake. I let my power go to my head, and um, and you know, I, I I shouldn't have done that. So he took a plea deal and went to prison for a year. And, uh, and it was very hard. You know, his company was a big company at the time, had about a thousand employees. And, you know, at, when he left, I had to deal with, you know, I, I went to his office, you know, five days a week. And uh, we had, you know, great professionals who, stood, who stepped up to run the company. But you have a million people. The government was still sending subpoenas, trying to target people. It was very chaotic. And then I'd go and visit him, you know, every week or maybe I'd take a week off every now and then, but try to visit him 
every week in prison just to spend the time. And you know, my father and I are very close. We ran the marathon together. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and he's an amazing person. And so uh, I think you learn a lot from that experience that, uh, you know, one thing he said to me was, you know, in life, sometimes you're at 10,000 feet. You have to come down to earth to really understand what's there. And so, you know, I, I saw very high in life. I saw very low in life. And, you know, going through that experience, you realize that things can get taken from you, right? You know, your freedom can be taken from you. Uh, you know, your wealth can be taken from you. Your clothes can be taken from you. And what really matters is just, you know, your, your, your friends, your health, and, and what you do and what you make of the time you have. And so uh, it, it was a fundamentally transformative uh, period of my life. And I, I write about my reactions after and, and two, you know, specific things that, that I write about are, number one is, uh, you know, after a couple of days of, of spending time with him and getting that situation as settled as it was going to get, I go back to New York and got back to my apartment on Mercer Street. And I basically just sat on the floor and I started crying. And I realized that my life had changed and, and I realized that there was a lot of things I was angry at, right? You're angry at the prosecutor, you're angry at your, my father's siblings for you know, escalating something over money. Uh, and then I was angry at my father to a degree. And mm -hmm. I, I realized that that just wasn't productive. You know? And then I, I really made a decision to shift all of my time and effort towards trying to be helpful, helpful to my mom, helpful to my dad, helpful to my siblings, helpful to the company. And that was just a fundamental choice. And I, I think that that's been something in my life, whether it was some of the challenges in business that, that occurred or even my time in government. Anytime there was a challenge, a lot of people get very angry or trying to figure out why it happened or what they could have done different. I always would just say, okay, well, it is what it is. How do we take the variables we have and try to make it as good as it can be? And so that was really you know, a fundamental lesson. And, and I think the other lesson I, I learned as well is I, I finally did my first day back at, at the office at the DA's at the DA. Um, and, uh, you know, I would take the sixth train down to Canal Street uh, from Astor Place. And uh, I was going back up and for whatever reason, I just couldn't stand up. So I just stayed on the train and I, yeah. I rode the train all the way up to the Bronx and back for about, it was like two to three hours. And I was just looking at everyone's faces, right? You know, you're seeing the people getting on and off the train and for whatever reason in my mind, I was saying, what are the, what, what's their story? And I was kind of making up stories for each one. I was saying, well, this woman, maybe, you know, maybe she can't find a way to you know, feed her family, or maybe this guy's about to lose his job, or maybe you know, this woman just found out that her mother has cancer. And, and so I kind of realized like, everyone has problems in life, and, and I had my problems, but you know, everyone has problems. And so I kind of said, you know, nobody wants to hear about your problems. Nobody, you know, you know just you got to just do the best with what you got every day and move forward. So it was a, it was a very interesting experience. I, I met a lot of people in prison um, that were with, in prison with my father, actually amazing people, still friends to this day um, from different backgrounds. Some were bad people, some were, were amazing people who just made mistakes. And so it's a, it was a very interesting period of life and one that, um, that obviously taught me a lot. What was it about the prosecution that, that caused you to have that change and not go that route? Did you just see corruption? Did you see like an endless goose chase? So I saw, you know, my, my father was, you know, he was really the leader of our community. He, you know, anyone who would lose a job, he would give them a job. He, uh, anytime somebody, you know, needed a surgery and couldn't afford it, he would pay for it, you know, anonymously. You know, he supported so many people uh, and did so many goods, uh, so much good. When he was sentenced, he had over 700 letters that were sent on his behalf, like each one was more beautiful than the next mm. about stories that even his family didn't know about. And what I saw was that they started investigating and 
then they were looking for one thing and then it just never ends. And then they keep digging for more and more. And there was an accountant who stole all the documents who now works for my father's brother who, you know, turned it over to the government and, and it just played out in the press. And, you know, there was a, it's funny at the time, one of his friends said to him, there's an Irish saying, which is tall buildings attract lightning. Um, and he was a tall building and, and he attracted lightning. And I saw just the prosecutors have unlimited power, unlimited resources. And when they want to dig, they'll dig. I mean, it was a company that had, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue at the time. And ultimately they were saying, okay, you, you should have categorized something this way instead of this way for like a couple hundred thousand. And that was what he, he kind of pled to. And, and that's pretty subjective and usually something that's, that's done civilly as opposed to criminally. So I just saw that, you know, Christie wanted to get my father. He was a big trophy uh, politically for him and he was just absolutely relentless. And, uh, and but again, my, my father, uh, under so much pressure, allowed his emotions to get the better of him and made a mistake as well, which was a lesson for me going through all the investigations that we ultimately <laughs> went through as well in Washington, which was, you know, if you have good facts, like you just have to be tight, be tight, be tight. And again, people saw I didn't talk much. They, they saw me accused of all kinds of things. But, you know, I just, I tried to just be tight, be tight, be tight, just to know that I, I, I didn't, I didn't think my enemies could defeat me, but I knew that I was capable of defeating myself by making a mistake, and I didn't want to, that to happen. Yeah, it's funny you turned it to that, because as you were saying that, I was thinking, boy, this, this sort of endless chase and the, this power that they have to keep going and going, that does sound awfully familiar to some things <laughs> happening, happening these days. So obviously it's not what the book's about, but just to knock out a little bit of current events kind of quickly, when you're seeing sort of what's happening right now, the raid and all this stuff, does it ring very familiar to you? Like oh, we just kind of have power and we can exercise that power and then we'll figure out if he did something. Like yeah, a little bit like a, that. A thousand percent. Like you saw this with Trump. And again, I, I write about in the book what it's like to be in the middle of that storm and being accused of treason and having to spend two years. And at some point you're saying like, maybe I'm the one who's crazy, right? Because I know I didn't collude with, with Russia. I mean, in most days I couldn't collude with Trump on the campaign, you know, or like the handful of people we had. It was a right. ragtag campaign. And I, I write about how we pulled it together and did that. But then you go to Washington, you have media sources that you thought were these like pristine, amazing institutions like the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN or MSNBC. But every single day and every single night, they're running more articles or running more stories saying that, oh, the, the breaking gun, uh, breaking news, the walls you know, are crashing, the walls are are crashing in. in. Yeah, yeah. And I'd see it every day. And like, I'd, I'd turn on, you know, like Rachel Maddow at night. And, and I was like, holy cow, like do people actually believe this. And I write actually, you know, Schumer used to be a, a close friend yeah, of our family. Yeah. And he was going around the Upper East Side telling all my, my parents' friends, like Jared's about to be indicted. He's going to go to jail. We know it for sure. We have all the facts, what they did to collude with Russia. They were basically denying an election. Um, yeah. But anyway, so, so that was, uh, that was definitely it. And I, and I see it with Trump now where it's like they, they tried one thing, it failed. They tried the next thing, it failed. And then, you know, he leaves office and then they, uh, they impeach him after he leaves office. And then, you know, he uh, now he's being looked at by the attorney general, uh, even though there was no, no money lost at all. But they're saying maybe his financial statements were either high or low or whatever it is. And then uh, then they you know run these primetime hearings basically to say what a bad person he was. And then um, and then, you know, then they, they raid his home. And so, you know, I, I, I do have a lot of feelings that prosecutors left unchecked with political ambitions. And that's why one of the issues I write about in the book, too, is how, uh, because of my experiences, I, I spearheaded an effort uh, that President Trump ultimately uh, endorsed and got behind to bring criminal justice reform. And I do think that 
his being so persecuted while he was in Washington opened his heart to appreciate how unfair prosecutors can be. And what, what bothers me a lot is that all of the people who are my allies from the left uh, against big government overreach and how unfair prosecutors can be, they were amazing advocates. They believe it. But when it happens to Trump, it's okay. And right. so, so the, so the moral you, lines are a little bit uh, that they have, I guess, footnotes to them, you know? I think that's pretty much the uh, the definition of Trump derangement syndrome, these people that have this set of beliefs, but when it comes to Trump, those beliefs kind of just don't exist. So, so going forward a little bit before you got fully into politics, so now you and Ivanka are married, Donald signed off on it, obviously, <laughs> and you're living a life in New York City that's not political, particularly, right? And then the call comes in, okay, you're, you're gonna, he's, gonna, he's gonna do this thing. Did you immediately think that you could be part of it or had value to add or that Ivanka wanted to be part of it or were you worried, et cetera? So, so we didn't know what, I, I know this may sound weird, but you know, I would imagine like most families sit around and say, what should we do? This is a big decision. You know, I, I write about, you know, we were having uh, lunch with, uh, with Donald for, uh, for, I think it was his birthday. And he says to the kids, he says, you know, okay, guys, I'm announcing this week and everything's going to be different. And with him, like, there's always something, you know? So it was like, yeah. you know, and he'd been flirting with it for a long time. He'd asked Ivanka to, to write a speech for him. And actually, one thing that was funny, she took him to go see Rupert Murdoch because uh, she said, look, if you're running, you got to go sit with him. Yeah. And Rupert says, ah, you're not running. You're not going to do it. And Donald left and he says, why was he so dismissive? And Ivanka says, look, Dad, you asked me to introduce you when you give your speech. Like, I'm still not sure you're going to announce, right? And she says, look, if, if you know, by the way, if, if you make me write this speech and get ready and you, I give this speech and you get up there and say, just kidding, like, I'll be pretty mad at you. And, uh, and so, you know, he, he kind of went into it. And then we all said, let's see what happens. And, and the first month was just crazy. I mean, I, somebody uh, tweeted, which I saw, which was funny, where they said that the last slow news day we've had was uh, June 15th, 2015, right? The day before day he before the Day before and, the escalator. And, uh, you know, he got up there and the month after for Ivanka was really consumed with putting out all the fires, right? I think Trump lost about $30 million in just annual contracts that were coming in with different, you know, vendors yeah. and her and her brothers were dealing with that. Um, and I didn't really get involved until, uh, I guess it was later on, I, I, Donald said, come with me to a rally. And I said, you know what, let me see this, right? Everyone in my, in my social circle in New York was saying, this is a joke, he's going to lose. But every time that happened, like he kept going up more and more in the polls. And so I thought we were in a very worldly circle with we the heads of the banks, the heads of the fashion industry, the heads of the technology, the heads of the media. And I said, well, let me just go see things with my own eyes. So yeah. I, I traveled him to Springfield, Illinois. Uh, you know, we fly out in his big 757, you know, Trump Force One jet. And we're, we're going out there and he's just, you know, bullshitting like he does, you know, talking about the grandkids and football. And we walk out. I have no idea what to expect. Uh, we get into a car, go to a convention center. We walk in. The gentleman greets him and says, you know, welcome, Mr. Trump. Uh, congratulations. You just broke the record for this convention center. Huh. And he says, well, who's the record? He says, well, it's Elton John 36 years ago. And he turns to me and says, see, and I don't even have a guitar. <laughs> so we went in there. And I, I also was surprised, too. I saw him shaking everyone's hand. And, like, he was a germaphobe before it was popular right. to be a germaphobe. And so he was shaking everyone's hand, really engaging with everyone he saw, trying to get information from them. And he gets up on stage for about an hour and, and just talks with no notes and anything. And there was one particular moment, you know, he's talking about trade where he was saying things that were contrary to what my friends in the Upper East Side thought. But he gets up there and says, we're going to end Common Core and we're going to send it to the States. And the crowd went wild. And keep in mind, the crowd was not 
what CNN told you it was going to be, course, right? They made course. it seem like it was like Ku Klux Klan or yep. whatever. It was old, young, white, black, male, female. Um, and so, and it just felt like it was real Americans who felt like the government had stopped representing them. And so two weeks earlier, I'd been at a charity gala in New York for the Robin Hood Foundation, which is one of these great, uh, great groups that does amazing work. And the president of it gets up there and says, the way we are going to create equality in this country and save uh, our, our country is by promoting Common Core. And what everyone has to do is call their senators, call their congressmen. This is the policy. This is it. This is going to change. And I was like, okay, I guess Common Core is good. I mean, what did I know? I was doing real estate and technology and like I wasn't you know, deep in the policy. So it kind of made me think like, wait, I thought all these worldly people knew what they were talking about. Why did these people feel so differently to them? And so mm-hmm. all it did was really start my exploration uh, through the process. And then well, I What told, did you consider yourself politically at that point? Like if you were sort of having your own wake up relative to some of this stuff, did you consider yourself like a, like a New York liberal, like a... Like I was an no. Upper West Side liberal. I was for for many years. I'm, I'm obviously not anymore. But did you? I wouldn't say that. When I was at Harvard, I was probably much more liberal, right? That's what you're you're taught. I mean, yeah. You take like Act Ten with Marty Feldstein, you're and gonna... you know you're basically you know yeah. you know you you have like certain views of of how the world works. I did uh, I did you know uh, I started off doing kind of social studies, so it was you know reading a lot of the political theorists and and. Um, uh, but I, through the newspaper, we endorsed uh, Obama in 2008, uh, and then in 2012, we endorsed Romney, because uh, I, I thought that Obama's policies were very divisive, and I, I thought that he was terrible with his Middle East uh, work, uh, especially how he was kind of going to try to do a deal with Iran, and, and, and I felt like he was really weakening the U.S.-Israel relationship, which I didn't like. Um, and so I endorsed him, and I, I was very close with Mike Bloomberg at the time. I thought he represented probably... He was probably the best embodiment of my political package. So I was mm-hmm. registered as an independent, um, but probably at that point, very centrist. But like I said, it, it was more, it was it was kind of like this deep, right? And I learned too, like most people are actually this deep. And yeah. one of the cool things about the books, I take people about through my journey as somebody who was from that echo chamber yep. and then went and explored the country. Most people don't get to meet people who disagree with them and don't engage with them. And uh, and I got to speak with so many people, but I did it with an open mind because I was having to write speeches at the time for Donald on the campaign um, that were representing his points of view, which were points of view that were different than what I thought was the right point of view to have. So in doing that, I was exploring these things, researching these things, um, and it, it opened my eyes to the fact there's a lot more nuance to a lot of these policies. So then the campaign's starting, and I've talked to Don Jr. about this publicly on this show and, and privately. Like He was telling me how so many people that were lifelong friends of his suddenly deserted him and just all of that nonsense. So now you and Ivanka are intimately involved in this thing, and then he wins. Now you're going to D.C. I mean, first off, did you have just a whole bunch of friends that shed you immediately, and how insane was just getting to D.C. and then seeing what that was like. So, so believe it or not, we didn't. And I, I think that what, what what happened was, is I think through my father's experience, I was very selective in who I let in. So Ivanka and I have a very uh, close relationship. And a lot of our time in New York was spent just the two of us, right? If we had to choose between going to a dinner party or being with us, we would be with us. And we would always love doing different adventures, going on dates, you know, trying new restaurants, seeing new neighborhoods. Um, and then as we started building a family, that was a priority for us as well. And we'd had a ton of acquaintances, you know, from New York, but uh, but the people who were our real friends were people who we thought were very quality people who we uh, got things out of and, and I think who got things out of us. And uh, mm-hmm. those people were all people uh, mostly on the left of the political spectrum. Again, I had probably like one 
conservative friend um, uh, that I could think of from before this experience. Um, but everyone was very respectful and very, very open of what we were doing and recognized that, again, it wasn't Ivanka and I who were, you know, giving speeches or making policies. It was her father and, you know, she was doing what, uh, what a, a devoted daughter uh, would do. Um, but for me, I, I was much more open-minded and much, much more uh, studying the policies. I think for Ivanka, she basically said, okay, if this is the situation that's happening, she had a mission-driven business at the time mm-hmm. where there were issues she was advocating for. She said, well, if I can use this as a platform to elevate the issues I, she cared about, like paid family leave mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and child care, um, she says, well, then I, I think it's kind of irresponsible not to do that. So she gave a speech at the RNC introducing her father and, and all the things on the internet after were saying was, did she think she was at the Democratic <laughs> convention because they were not traditionally right, right. Republican policies? Um, and, no. that, and that her dad used to be loved by the Democrats. I mean, there's no shortage of pictures of with all those people when they used to love him. And he was donating to some of them. Yeah, being in New York, and again, he was part of pop culture and yeah. all this. So, so yeah. But but the short answer is is that you know our friends were 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 really strong and 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 really still are. And uh, what I found is that um, when we decided to go to Washington, and I write about kind of how we made that decision because it wasn't like we were thinking, okay, he's going to win and then this is going to happen, right? right? The whole campaign was like, let's get to goal line plus an inch. Like you know, who the hell knows how this is going to work out? But you do talk about that. You kind of thought it was going to happen the whole time, right? I didn't. Again, logically, it felt like he should be able to do it, right? Mm-hmm. All the math, and I, I can go into a whole thing on polling. But from what I saw, it was like the polling all seemed like it was not scientific, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look at all the public polling that predicted he was going to lose, I was shocked by how many people just followed it. But polling is basically you call five hundred people and they say yes or no, and then you have to do something called uh, a waiting, right? And waiting is basically you say, okay, this is okay. If we call, you know, a hundred Democrats and a hundred Republicans, how many people do you think are going to vote? And then you kind of recalculate the the results in order to do that. So what happened in Brexit right before Trump won was the polling was off massively. Now it predicted the amount of people who said stay pretty accurately, but it was off by about three million votes for the people who predicted to leave. Mm-hmm. And, and as we I researched why that was, I was reading all the the info on it. It basically said that they just undercounted uh, low propensity voters. And mm-hmm. so with Trump, uh, all the media was using basically the Obama-Romney turnout model. And I was like, I don't think that's indicative, right? Like Obama had a different electricity that Hillary didn't have. And, yeah. and, and Trump had a different electricity that Romney didn't have. So it felt like it should be different. And then when I look at, we had a data, we built a data file about 10 million people were showing up to Trump rallies. And a big percentage of them were low propensity voters. And so we basically, every time we do a sample, which we, we re-engineered the polling, we basically ran it through two different models. One was like the media model, which showed we were going to lose. And one was our model, which showed we were going to win. And hmm. so I just, again, be, you know, Romney went into election night thinking they were going to win, if I was told, and then were disappointed. So I never allowed myself to believe our data because I'd never done it before. And so, but that was what I believed was more logical as an outcome, but we didn't think about what would come next. Sorry, so, it's such a long No, no. Thing. So speaking of what came next, so now you get there, and now, now you're working for the president, and media's not that happy, <laughs> CNN, New York Times, okay, all that stuff. But you guys actually were accomplishing an awful lot pretty much from the get-go, considering you had no nobody willing to, to work with you. Yeah, so it, it was a wild thing. And, and the first year, in writing the book, I, I went through the first year, and it brought back a lot of memories that actually were really painful for me because A, we get to Washington, so we make the decision to, to, and it wasn't like, oh, should we stay in New York and live our lives, or should we go to Washington? It was like, okay, 
he is now going to be the president of the United States. Our former lives as we knew it don't exist anymore, yeah. right? So, and then you say you have an opportunity to serve in, in government um, and try to make an impact. And I, I built more confidence based on the fact that in the campaign, I was able to achieve certain successes and things um, that experienced political people told me was the wrong way to do it. But then I did it that way and it ended up working. And so I said, well, let's, let's give it a shot and let's try to help him. And again, you know, he'd never been a mayor, never been a governor. So he was running a family business. He was used to working with family. His campaign was a family campaign. And so we said, let, let, let's go give it a shot and, and really try to see if we could help him implement the policies that we believe in and, and try to do things that we believe are good. So Ivanka gave up her business to then focus on her mission. Uh, I went in. And uh, we had no idea what a brutal world uh, Washington was going to be. And so whether it was like the attacks from the media, whether it was the investigation, I mean, within three months I have, you know, people leaking on me like crazy from inside the White House. You know, you talk to yourself and it would be in the Washington Post. Uh, Wait, can you just talk about a little bit more about what that's like, the, the leak situation? Like, how is it possible? Because everyone's always talking about the leaks. It, mm -hmm. They were talking about an awful lot with Trump, but it happens in every administration. Mm -hmm. Like, did you feel like oh, here's 10 people in this room in this meeting, like six of them might be the one, or like how do you manage some of that stuff as an advisor? Or do you pull him aside and say, hey, Mr. President, maybe don't, or dad-in-law, or whatever you call him, Don, yeah. do you maybe don't say everything you think off the cuff in front of everybody because we have this problem? Like, so, so I think I learned, and I think he learned as well. You know, one of the funny jokes somebody told me was they said, in Washington, if you want to keep a secret between three people, two of them have to be dead, <laughs> right? And so, uh, you know, but it, it wasn't quite that bad. I, I think it was a function of, in the beginning, I felt very, very helpless, right? Like I said, I think something, and like it would lead to the Washington Post. It was so bad. Yeah. And I think with him too. So, so a couple of things, I, again, I, I write about how I adjusted and said, okay, the game is the game. It's been here long before me. It's going to be here long after me. You know, you have a chance to be in the game. If you are in the game, you can get good things done, but you have to get better at the game. And yeah. so certain things like when I would give my opinion to Donald, especially when I would disagree with him, I would always do it one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. I would never say my opinion in front of other people, um, or I would say something that I didn't think would be salacious. But when I wanted to strongly disagree, I would always do it privately mm -hmm. because you never wanted to read about that in the press because that would, if you, I never wanted division to, to show between us because he always gave me the opportunity to voice my opinion. And sometimes he would listen, sometimes he wouldn't. Again, I was an advisor. Um, and some things, quite frankly, I had more conviction on, some things I had less conviction on. And often when he would ask me, I'd say, look, I'm not an expert on it. Let me find somebody who I think is and bring them in to give you that point of view. Mm -hmm. um, but, but so that was probably number one. And then when it came to just dealing with people, you learned very quickly like who was leaking to which places. And right. we just had so many of them who were, who were scumbags who were doing that. But were they all your guys? You know what I mean? Or were they, were they yeah. like sort of deep state people that were all there all the time? Or no, were, they, no. were yeah, there a lot, lot of them? them were the people coming in. Yeah. Look, we, 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 I mean, we didn't have a lot of people, right? And, and you know, the campaign was ragtag. Uh, we had to staff up quickly. We were making a lot of decisions, putting different people together. And uh, yeah, you just have people. And then, you know, the more people get insecure, the more they, it's an environment that that kind of encourages more of it. So it's it's a very, very complicated situation to work in. But like I said, I, I figured out how to adjust. I got tighter. Um, and then ultimately over time, like towards the end, we we announced a peace deal, which, I, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. But like, and nobody knows about it, right? So So I learned how to find the people who you could work with to keep things quiet. But it just took me some time, and like when you work in, you know, real estate or technology, like nobody's out there leaking to the press, and right. and everyone's aligned for the same mission too. So, 
it's just a different game and, and you just have to learn to adjust to the game. Right. So, all right, let's jump o- over to the to the peace process. So now things are happening. You're a couple of years in. You were working on this from day one, basically? Mm-hmm. Or really, was it from day one? Like you said, this is going to be something I'm going to get on. Did he want you on that? Was this something that you just brought to him? So um, the way I found out about it uh, was uh, I get a call from the woman who did uh, public relations for our, our real estate business. And at the time, Ivanka and I were still thinking, will we go to Washington or not? And she calls and says, the New York Times just called and said, you and Ivanka have decided to go to Washington, that you're working on Middle East peace. I said, well, that's not true. I said, that we haven't made a decision. He says, well, their source is your father-in-law. I said, okay. So he went there for, I guess, uh, an editorial board meeting, and they asked him, he said, oh, Jared's great. He's going to come, and he's going to work on Middle East peace. Oh, that's peace. hilarious. So, and I don't yeah. know if he meant it or not, but you know, the next day, you're going to who is Jared Kushner? What the hell does he know about the Middle East? By right. the way, they were right. I didn't know anything. Maybe it was the last time they were right. And um, but then, you know, after the first couple of months, I said, okay, well, this is something I was tasked with. Let me let me start exploring. So, you know, Jason Greenblatt came in with me and, and Avi Berkowitz, and yep. uh, we started um, we started just researching what had been done before us. And what I did in the first year was I, I just tried to understand everyone's perspective on the files. So. My, my biggest deficit was that I didn't have any diplomatic experience, but my biggest advantage was that I didn't have any diplomatic experience. So I came in, and I, I give one example in here where I'm meeting with the ruler of the UAE, who's a, thought to be the most strategic thinker in the region. He's somebody who's been there a while. He just became uh, the president of the country, and he's a, a guy, Mohammed bin Zayed, who's, a, who's really a giant. And I'm, I'm meeting with him after about six months, and I take him through some of the thoughts as to how one approach it. And I, I really was asking him a ton of questions. And he says, I think you're going to make peace here. So wh- why do you say that? He says, well, the US usually sends one of three types of people to see me. The first types are people who come and fall asleep in meetings. Says the second are people who come and they basically read me talking points and have no ability to have a, a, a conversation. The third are senior level people who come and basically try to convince me to do things that are against my interests. Mm-hmm. He says, you're the first person who's ever come to see me from the US who's asking questions. And my fundamental question was very simple, which is the US has a ton of power. Um, what would you do if you were us? Right? Like, What's the end state that's achievable here? And what levers would you play with if you were us in order to try to achieve that end state? And it took him a couple times of me asking that question to actually understand that I was seeking like a, an honest feedback on the question. Mm. But that was how I started with everyone, trying to understand, get their point of view on what needed to be done knowing that American foreign policy, and this is not a knock on Democrats, a knock on Democrats and Republicans, basically screwed up the entire Middle East. If you take it from, you know, allowing you know, even just from, you know, the fall of the Shah in Iran to, you know, the, 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 the revolution in 79, and then you go into obviously allowing Al-Qaeda to have harbor and, and then the attacks on, on the U.S. and then getting us into a war in Iraq and a war in Afghanistan, and then you have disbanding the army and then just... It goes on and on and on. Then you know you have uh, ISIS has a caliphate the size of Ohio. They're beheading journalists. They're uh, they're killing Christians. Uh, they're they're you, know, you have uh, them radicalizing people online. The San Bernardino shooting, the, mm-hmm. the Pulse nightclub shooting. Uh, Syria's in a civil war. Half a million people are killed. I mean, U.S. policy in that region for decades was absolutely awful. And part of me, I guess, maybe Trump was saying can't get any worse. So give Jared a try. Right. Um, but we thought about it in a different way and really worked hard. And I, I write about kind of my journey trying to understand it for what it was at the time instead of being romanced by the old notions. And then 
the more I would talk to the people who'd done it, and they would explain, well, this is what you have to look at, and this you have to do. I was like, that makes absolutely no sense to me. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to fail, at least I'll fail in an original way and doing something that I think is logical. And I was creamed. I mean, the New York Times would kill yep. me. Uh, all the experts, you know, on CNN, they would write articles, you know, saying that everything I was doing was wrong and stupid and reckless and going to cause wars. Well, even as the, the announcements were coming out, as the deals were coming out, they were saying why these are bad deals. And it's like, oh, they weren't wait, good I enough. thought that we all wanted Middle East peace. Wasn't that one thing? There's a yeah. short list of things we all agree on that used to be one thing that we all kind of want. So did you find that a lot of the countries actually were quite willing once once you made that initial sort of, once you flipped the script on them, in so, essence? So, so uh, in some ways, it, the entrenchment there was just as bad as the entrenchment home, right? So you think about all these, these critics, and what you have in Washington is like this, this class of people who are basically careerists, you know, you know, going in and out of Washington, and then you have the same people who are writing about them or from the think tanks or, or the, the media, and they're also, you know, so it's, it's like the same class of people. I believe this is what we call the swamp. Is yeah. this the swamp? And, and they're, the they're swamp? all vested yeah. in not being proven wrong. Yeah. So they'd rather you also fail than you be proven right and do it. And, and the whole notion of the Trump presidency was bringing people who were outsiders to Washington, who were results driven. You know, again, politicians are about process and, and talking points. Uh, businessmen are about results. Mm-hmm. And so we come in with a fundamentally different approach. And, and that's the, the theme in my book that happens time and time again, right? There's two basic cross currents in the book. One is what it was like to be under endless attack from you know, Russia investigation and impeachment about trying to you know, look into corruption in Ukraine, all the media attacks. And that, that's one current, I call that the waves. And then you have kind of under the water where it's nice and calm, which is how did all these policies get done, right? Mm-hmm. How do we get trade deals done? How do we get peace deals done? How do we get deals with Congress done? How do we get criminal justice reform done? Um, and so I, I really try to put those two things together. But that, 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 that complacency was the same thing I found in the Middle East, in the sense that everyone thought that there were limitations to what they could do. And what I found is like all these barriers are usually in people's minds. Mm-hmm. And, and in the region, everyone thought it was fixed, and that if there were certain things you did, it was just unsolvable, and you had to go and solve it the same way that people before had tried to solve it and fail, or else it's going to be World War III. And I, I take people through, again, I take them into the situation room and, and really try to give them the intensity of what it was like to make some of the first decisions, right? So Trump making the decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem, his secretary of state was against it. Secretary of defense was against it. The intel community comes out with assessments saying that if he does it, it's going to be World War III yeah, yeah. and the world's going to explode. And again, Trump- Even though every president for what? Had said they were going to do it, but then they all got scared away by right. the conventional thinking that happened. And what Trump did, again, a businessman you think about, okay, that's a risk. How do I assess the risk? And then how do I mitigate the risk? And I talk about how we assess the risk, how we mitigated the risk, and how we pushed forward to do it. And at the end of the day, at that point, he'd gotten closer with the Arab countries. He said, look, you can't cherry pick your relationship with America. Iran's your biggest threat. I'm going to work with you on that because I agree with you on that, right? That's in our common interests. But don't mess around on the things that I want to do. Israel's a sovereign country. They have the right to determine their capital. And America is a sovereign country, and we have the right to recognize the decision of another sovereign country, and that's what I'm doing. Okay, and I'm not going to ask your opinion. And again, it was very, very intense because people showed. So Trump makes the decision, and I really give some funny stories about kind of the back and forth and, and the high stakes of it. But he makes a decision, and then we worked hard to mitigate. And then what happens is the next morning the sun rises, and the next evening the sun sets, and the, and the world moves on. Same thing with getting out of the Iran deal. People mm-hmm. warned him that if you do this, you're going to have World War III, everything's going to blow up. He makes a decision, 
The next morning, the sun rises. The next evening, the sun sets. And he figured out ways to maneuver. And so all of a sudden, everything that seemed so fixed to people, all of a sudden was becoming a little bit more uh, of, 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 of a fluid situation. And so the, the big obstacle was the Israelis and the Palestinians. And, you know, again, as I looked at that issue, and I, I go through this in the book, um, that was like, seems to me like a fake situation, right? It's been one of these manufactured situations for years, and there's just so much asymmetry and incentives, right? The Palestinian leadership was getting rich. I mean, Bibi Netanyahu, who runs a military and economic superpower in Israel, would fly to Israel, he'd fly in an LL commercial jet. Abbas, who I'm sitting with him in a meeting like we are, he wants a cigarette, he puts a cigarette in his mouth, somebody comes over and lights it for him like he's a king. And then he flies to Washington in a $60 million BBJ. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, it's right. like, and so like the whole thing was, he was rich, his family was rich, everyone's doing great, but the Palestinian people weren't getting weren't getting the love, right? Yeah. So we exposed kind of what a bunch of crap that was and how, again, the goal of a leader should be to, you know, number one, provide security for their people, number two, to provide economic opportunities so people can live a better life. Um, security, he did as much for himself as he did for the people. And I have some examples in the book of ways that we tested and he kind of was bluffing and then we call his bluff and he backs off very weakly. And then we also have situations in there with... Um, uh, with economics, where we exposed that he wasn't really trying to do that. So that that was kind of uh, what we have in there. And, and that also allowed the leaders to think differently than they did before. How, how much more do you think you could have got done? Had there oh. been four more years, like were dominoes really ready to fall? I remember right before the election, people kept saying, oh no, there's six more deals in place and there's we, all this other stuff. We, we wouldn't have even needed four more years. We wouldn't have needed six more months. And, and again, I, I outlined this all for the incoming administration, but you know, so the, the last deal that we got done, and it was a, a high wire deal, and I have some very crazy moments of this in my book, was uh, after we get UAE and Bahrain, uh, you have Sudan and Morocco, uh, Sudan goes, then Morocco we get in the lame duck period, which people were surprised. Yeah. And we were trying to get Saudi to go, but we couldn't get Saudi or Qatar until the rift was resolved between them. So I'd been working on that for about three months, and we had amazing breakthroughs in a very intense negotiation. And that one, again, like literally on, on the tarmac to take off and the deal dies and it dies several times. And you know, these are complicated situations. So that one we got done Jan 5th, which I think opened it up for the new administration. I laid out for them a roadmap. We were close with Mauritania, I felt. Uh, I think Saudi was very doable. I think now it's a question of when, not if. But it needs U.S. leadership to make it happen. And so what I basically said to what the incoming administration is like, look, congratulations, you guys can get all these deals done. We just, we're running out of clock. Um, but just don't run to Iran. If you run to Iran, you're going to upset everything. We have Iran weaker than they've ever been. Uh, our policy's working. Just tell Iran you're too busy dealing with climate change and COVID and all the stuff you, you're focused on um, and wait for them to come to you. And what I would do is go to Saudi Arabia, sit with them, say, look, we want you to do a deal with Israel. We'll wait six months, we'll wait a year, let's work on a plan together. Well, I know we said some bad stuff in the campaign. You've been a, a, a country that's worked with America for 80 years. You've been a great uh, ally in, in many regards. What's going to take to get that to happen so we could finally end once and for all the Arab-Israeli conflict? Um, and uh, they nodded and then did absolutely nothing according to that. So, so I think that we could have... We could you literally hand them like a packet? Did you hand them like this is what's got to happen? Like, I, I didn't literally... write like a memo, but I sat down twice with yeah. incoming national security advisor, basically outlined. I said, "Look, this is where we are." I was giving full transparency into the discussions, um, and but I, 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 I fundamentally believe it could have happened very quickly. 
um, had they taken a policy. But again, they, they ran to Iran, got down on their knees, started begging them. I mean, Iran's, you know, Trump used to always say Iran's never won a war, but never lost a negotiation. And, uh, and what they did was terrible. Then they started kind of browbeating Saudi, which made them say, okay, let's, you know, you're, there's, there's other countries in the world too. Then they're running over to China. Um, they, they alienated a lot of the people there. And look, I think their recent policy has shifted back, right? They went to Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, what they did with UAE, they, they had uh, missiles shot at their airport from the Houthis in, uh, in, uh, in Yemen, yeah. right? So we actually designated the Houthis a terror organization because they were firing missiles into two of our allies in Saudi Arabia and UAE and chanting, you know, insignificant statements like death to America, death to Israel. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the first thing the Biden administration does when they come in is they undesignate them as terrorists. And then they fire missiles into UAE that land at their airport. I mean, that's like that's like the, the nerve center of commerce. And the U.S. doesn't call. They're not restocking their weapons. It was a very, 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 very uh, tense time. So I, I think right now, to give them credit, I think they are understanding that that maybe they didn't handle it as well as they could have in the beginning and it does feel just from what i'm seeing i'm an outsider now so i don't you know, from the inside like they're they're trying harder and i still think that these deals are very gettable if they if they focus on it in the right way yeah do you think part of the problem is that they don't want to do anything because it'll feel like it's just an extension of what you guys did and they, they sort of want to erase everything right they don't want them referred to as this, the abraham accords no this is one thing they've come around on right and, and right. actually they they participate in some of the events we've done to try to promote the abraham accords it took them a year right the first year they wouldn't call it by its name right but, but i think that that was high level people i think a lot of the you know the career folks in the state department they they were amazingly helpful in getting the abraham accords done and implemented and I think even like, you know, like uh, dealing with uh, Brett McGurk, he was very supportive. So I think there are a lot of people there who uh, who want to see it happen. Um, and I think it, with the right prioritization, it can. I, I just, again, I, I don't know if these guys have the right ability to do the negotiation. Again, they're, they're career politicians, right? They're, they're diplomats. Like we were the anti-diplomats, right? In the sense that we basically came in and, and we sat down and we figured out how to make deals. We got six peace deals done. We got major trade deals done. And again, I write about how we did it, which again, every single thing in this book that ended up being effective towards getting deals done are things that I got criticized for in the pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post. Of course, of course. So let, let's talk a little bit about the COVID situation and then mm -hmm. sort of how policy worked around that. Because one of the things that kind of blew me away the entire time was that the same people who every day were calling Donald Trump Hitler and all the worst things in the world, he's a dictator, blah, blah, blah. They were the same people who wanted him to have all the federal power to do whatever he wanted. Because very early on, he was like, let's leave it to the states and let them figure it out. Uh, you talk a little bit about some of the tensions with Fauci and all that. Mm -hmm. how, how crazy was that to advise him uh, in, in this sort of unknown moment? Yeah, so that was by far one of the scariest moments you could ever have, right? And, and again, we this was after three years. And by the way, hypocrisy, I figured out, is not like a new thing. And why you have to like day three, it didn't take me <laughs> after three years, you know? Right. Um, but um, but that was by far the scariest. We had things really moving. We were, you know, again, economy was roaring. We had great people in place. We had plans. We were building for second term. And then COVID comes out of nowhere and, and really hit the world like a ton of bricks. And, um, you know, I, I write about in the book, my experience getting pulled in, again, not as a medical expert, but just as somebody to help operationally who knew how to move the levers of government. Uh, Vice President Pence, who I worked very closely with, asked me to come on and, and, and help him uh, you know, execute with certain things like scale testing and whatnot. 
But it was very interesting. So you're making a lot of uh, decisions. Uh, the media was the first thing they got Trump on, right? Because if he was more careful, then he was killing jobs. If he was opening the economy, he was killing people. Yeah. And so CNN kept those tickers up, you know, depending on the day. And and they were loving the fact that they can just bludgeon him. And you could always find a nurse who's afraid they're going to run out of stuff. And, right, and we right. were playing racquetball. I mean, I had stories, you know, that I write about where I'd see a nurse on CNN complaining they don't have masks at a hospital. I'd get on the phone with the head of the hospital and say, what do you need? Okay, we'll get it to you. And we, we made sure all of these shortages that everyone was fearing were going to happen did not happen. A lot of it's because we thought like business people, not like bureaucrats, mm -hmm. right? So I tell stories about how, you know, we find all these masks, we figure out how to do DPAs and to get them. In order to get them over, we don't have enough planes as U.S. So I call Fred Smith, I call David Abney uh, from UPS and FedEx, and I said, look, we need your planes. And they're like, they're your Air Force, take them, like anything you do. And, and even David Abney told me months later, I've never seen anything like it in my career. As quickly as I could land planes in Asia, you had them filled with masks and sent mm. back. We were under a week away from running out of supplies in this country. And again, Trump thought out of the box, he empowered business people to do it and uh, got a lot of things done. And ultimately the biggest testament of that was Operation Warp Speed, right? So even Fauci said, can't you know, Trump is you know over exaggerating. It's gonna be at least a year and a half till we get a working vaccine. And so. We got the bureaucracy out of the way. Uh, we brought in the private sector, brought in the military. Uh, each thing, and, and this is one of the things I think readers have really liked about the book so far, is that I'm pretty honest about mistakes that I made and things that I could have done better. But I show from all these things how I learned from these experiences that enabled us. So like the, the lessons we learned on scaling testing was that I always say to solve a problem, there's three things you need, right? You need imagination, you need money, and you need gravity. Right, if th those three are basically the catch-alls of the categories you need. For testing, we had, I think, a really good plan, so the imagination check. Now you're the federal government, you print money, so we had endless, <laughs> endless cash, that wasn't our issue. Right. Uh, but we just couldn't produce Q-tips, right? basically swabs for people. Like, you know, we're about to launch 400 sites, and they come to me and say, sorry, we only have 1.2 million swabs in the country. So I'm like, man, and, and I, I started learning that like, the lowest cost item was gonna become our biggest bottleneck, mm -hmm. and that was just a gravity issue. So we, we worked that through and it was actually one of our issues with Fauci because he goes on television and he says, oh, I'm testing. We're just not there yet. Instead of saying like, dude, you were in charge of infectious diseases. You didn't tell us our, that we didn't have enough supplies in case one came. Then you're sitting in the task force every day. You've given us no additional ideas for how to do this better. If you're on TV, explain. We have a plan. We're doing it as fast as we can. We're going fast and everywhere else. Instead, I was like, are you a sportscaster? Right. Or are you a member of the task force? You so remember so the... what do you make of him? Or what did you make of him then? And is that different than now? Uh, I'll get to that in a sec. But just to finish what I was saying, is, yeah. that, um, is that ultimately those lessons we learned from that for warp speed, which is how we did everything right early, and that enabled us to be successful and ramp up the manufacturing simultaneously. And I, I give some lessons on that. With him, I think that to make it for, first of all, nobody should be in a job for 50 years, uh, especially not in a government job. I think he was an excellent politician um, in terms of his ability to be a survivor, but I think he also embraced a lot of the, the people would always build these people up as a counter to Trump. Like take mm -hmm. out like Michael Avenatti, who you know, is now I think in prison, Right. You know, the, the media made him a hero because, be president because he guy. was against Trump, right? Yeah. So, so the media would create these like false heroes. And I think with Fauci, they, they elevated him like they elevated, you know, 20 people before. And I think he embraced it. And I think he liked it. And I think that that led to a lot of, it wasn't about service. And it, and it led to a lot of misinformation and confusion that didn't have to be the case. And so, uh, again, like I, I give one great scene where Trump is fighting with him saying, Doc, I'm, I'm not going to keep the country closed. Like, I'm not going to oversee the funeral of the greatest country and economy in the history of the world. 
And he meekly goes back and says, look, I'm just here to give medical advice. I'm just a doctor. You're the president. Your job is to account for all the other factors. And he backed off pretty quickly there. And so, again, interesting guy to work with. He was very pleasant. Um, you know, we had a good uh, working relationship together, uh, but very politically calculating and savvy and uh, you know, wasn't always on our team. Did you feel that from the agencies in general, that the CDC or the NIH or whoever else you were working with, that generally they weren't going to be staffed with Trump people so that there was an odd incentive structure, right? They needed, you know, they knew an election was coming. And... Um, yes and no. Look, so, so Dr. Collins at, at NIH I thought was very professional, very knowledgeable, always doing well. We had a couple of tensions with him about uh, getting EUAs because they were trying to preserve perfect science. What we're saying, like, like something like convalescent plasma was an issue where they, we got killed in the paper because we were pushing to say, this is something that's been around for 100 years. We have a study that's showing that it's working. Get it out there. Let doctors make the decision if they want it or not. But they're saying the study, which was done by the Mayo Clinic, I think, or Cleveland Clinic, wasn't done in pristine. Thing. I said, well, look, this is wartime. Like, if, if it's looking good, let people make their decisions. It's not going to kill people. And that was where we had some fights with the scientists. The CDC was was an absolute barn fire mess. And you know, there's one fight I had with them where, and again, I backed off quickly because I'm saying, okay, how's this going to look on the front page of the New York Times? And I'm screaming at the head of the CDC. But they basically were saying this, this 14 days rule. And I, I said, okay, they're telling our people they have to quarantine for 14 days. And so I said to me, Bill, where does that come from? So we have a study. So I said, bring me the study. So that night, again, I was on like two hours of sleep, but I read through the study. And I'm seeing that it's like a study of 182 people, of which they know when 140 of them got the disease. The average time from contacting, contracting the disease to showing symptoms was 5.1 days. And because the sample size was so small, they used two standard deviations and told the whole world they had to spend 14 days in quarantine. Wow. In order to, I'm saying, wait, so we're, we're screwing up the entire global economy off the sample size of 140 people, right? It's like, so, so my point is like a lot of the things they were saying in the name of science were not scientific. And you know, we tried to be nimble. And at first we trusted all these people because what the hell do we know? These were the experts on infectious diseases. But I think over time we became more convinced that we had to be pragmatic about these things and take their guidance and their perspective, but weigh it accordingly, knowing that there were a lot of academics who weren't uh, very operational. Somebody like Dr. Burks was actually quite helpful because she'd been on the front lines in a lot of these different countries in Africa. So when it came to problems, she knew operationally how to solve them. And again, I thought she was a very useful voice. I learned a lot from her. Um, but it was uh, it was very complicated time to be in. A, an amazing experience. Uh, and again, I do think the work that President Trump did saved a ton of lives. And I think if you would have had a normal politician there instead of an outsider and somebody who had a results mentality, the outcomes would have been uh, significantly different. Well, maybe this is a silly question, but do you think had the uh, Democrats media, some of the organizations, CDC, et cetera, had they all been willing to work with Trump a little bit more? Do you think we could be in some real golden age right now that so many of the things that we see with the economy, supply chain, just all the nonsense that we're seeing, disaster in Afghanistan, that we really did have a chance to, to fix so much? You mentioned before that the, the peace deals, like there was a whole bunch coming right there. Do you think that had he, he was willing to work with people, right? Very much so. Look, I, I think that one of the things I'm, I, I try to be very honest about in, in my book is that I had certain biases coming in and my biases changed, but we all have biases. I think that the media today in particular is not really honest about their biases. And I don't think people are as liberated where they 
they still feel like playing to the standard of the media is the appropriate standard by which to try to conduct your, your conduct. And ultimately, we became liberated and said, okay, let's just do what we think is right. Um, but I do think a lot of these people in these agencies tried to play to the media, and the media was rewarding anyone who was in opposition to Trump. So that mm. was kind of like the general playing field. Again, not right or wrong. It's just the reality of what it was. I think from a pure policy point of view, like I said, I, I think I'm more of a centrist, more of a, a pragmatist in terms of how I think about these things. A lot of President Trump's policies I thought were spot on, right? Trade, right? There was a big debate on trade. Bringing our manufacturing jobs back to America was something that was like anti, I mean, you know, Paul Ryan was pissed at us yeah, and saying yeah. you're never going to get your USMCA trade deal done. But my mentor on that was Bob Lighthizer, who, by the way, is I think the best character in this book. People have come away saying that they, they really want to meet Bob and, and he really is a mentor and a great friend and, and hysterically funny. Um, and I write about how, what it was like working with him but trade was an issue, uh, you know, immigration, right? So a lot of my friends in New York would say, well, the wall is xenophobic and racist. And I'd say, okay, well, maybe that's what they feel. But then you get down, you're like, well, it's just like a sovereignty issue. And then like, you know, I talked to the border agents, like, oh, every mile of wall you put up, we can do, you know, more and more. And I write about actually how we got the wall built because that became a symbol of Trump's success. And mm -hmm. so the Democrats and even, I mean, Steve Bannon, John Kelly, they were supposed to get it done for the first two years, both failed. Trump asked me to get it done. I write about how we you know, found the $11 billion and I worked with Stephen Miller, Pat Cipollone, uh, Chad Wolf, Mark Morgan, you know, a whole group of people, uh, Russ Vote, to figure out how do we get the money and then how do we get it implemented and built. And so, and even on, on immigration, I think the merit-based immigration system he was working on is something that would have kept wages in America rising, brought a lot of GDP creators to our country, and people said he was against immigrants, but he was wanting people to come to our country legally and make America vacuum cleaner for all the best and brightest in this world so that they will continue to take our country to the next level. So I thought his policies were really excellent. And, uh, and to your question specifically, uh, I do give examples in the book of you know Kim Kardashian or Van Jones, people who uh, were not naturally mm -hmm. with Trump coming to the White House on an issue they cared about. Both of them took a lot of grief from people in the liberal circles. I think Van was getting called an Uncle Tom yeah. for you know, coming and working with Trump. Yeah. But Van did something that they didn't do. I mean, he had John Lewis criticizing him for doing it. But meanwhile, we got the biggest criminal justice reform and prison reform bill done in the history of our country. And so, you know, so I think that Trump was always, people who would go out and criticize him on television, I always saw that as virtue signaling, and I have no patience for virtue signaling. But people who wanted to get things done, a lot of people would work with me behind the scenes on things. Some things didn't get done in those meetings. And you'd be surprised some people were in my office in the White House, you know, meeting on policies. And, uh, and Trump, anytime somebody wanted to reach out and meet with him, he'd hear him out. Sometimes he would agree, sometimes not. But I always saw him more as a pragmatist than anything else. I think I legally have to ask you, so if, let's just say, he was to run again and you get the call again, or Ivanka gets the call, or it's on speakerphone, how are you going to feel? Look, I, I think that, and I'll, I'll tell you what, what, I, what I believe, right? So number one with Trump, you never know what he's going to do and you never know what's going to happen, right? That's, uh, that's the only thing that you can say with certainty. Uh, number two is I, I do believe that he is very bothered by what he sees them doing to this country, right? You know, if you think about when he left, we had peace throughout the world. China was on their back heel. Uh, you know, we even had a deal with the Taliban that I think would have would have worked out really well. Uh, no wars in Europe. Uh, economy was getting ready to to explode. You know, gas prices were low. Inflation was low. It wages was were good. rising. People forget, to, but it was 2019 good. was the first year in 20 that the the wealth gap in our country started to shrink. 
which was amazing. And that was because people on the bottom were making a lot more because of Trumponomics. So um, policies were great. But now these guys come in and, and number one is the only thing that unites them is that they hate Trump, yeah. right? So that's why they're raiding him and investigating him and they can't stop talking. I think Biden just gave a speech, you know, all about him, which is crazy yeah. after he raids his home, which is like, again, this is getting very close to like third world country stuff, the stuff that we would be mad at a dictator for. Yeah. Yeah. And, but his policies were really good. And I, I, I wished when they came in that they would say, you know what, let's just maybe talk the way politicians are supposed to talk and just keep all of Trump's policies. And I think they could have gone down as, as an incredible administration, but instead they've chosen to do the opposite. I think for him, uh, he knows that he could fix things really quickly. And, and that's what I think is, is pushing him to want to do something. And whether he makes a decision, that'll be up to him. Um, but we'll see what happens with that. So let's finish up with something that's not Trump-related and not directly D.C.-related or anything else. But uh, when I moved down to Florida, or when we moved down in December, I get an email from you, and it basically says, hey, heard you're, heard you're down here in Miami. Let's get together. And now we've, we've become friendly and, and had dinner a couple of times. And you said something to me the first time that we met that, that has really rung true with me, which is you said something to the effect, and maybe you could, I'll slightly butcher the quote, and then you can fix it. But I think you said something like, if America is to succeed, it starts here in Miami. It was something mm -hmm. to that effect, that something is happening here in Miami and more broadly Florida that, that is the map for the rest of the country. Now, clearly, I believe that. You know how much we're loving it here. I just opened these offices and the studio. Like, it's so flourishing here. What should people know about what's going on down here? And did you guys always think you were going to come down here once DC was done? Was it immediate? No. Let's go down to Florida and Miami, or did you want it to was, go? How, how do you even end up here? Yeah, it was very um, It was very last minute. And first of all, you know, I was very glad when I saw you move down, because you were a voice that I followed when I was in the White House. And and I know we'd missed each other at one of the, the, the parties in the yeah. White House. and. And when I saw you came down, I said, this is great, you know, because Florida people are forming, it's just, a, it's a place where everyone's helping everyone. And so uh, the, the decision was like this, right? We're, we're, we're figuring out what we want to do. We traveled the whole country. So we'd seen all these different places. So we'd identified like maybe two or three cities that we thought could be really exciting places to go. New York was out of the question at the time because it was basically like Pompeii. I mean, right. it, was, it was closed <laughs> down. Yeah. The restaurants were yeah. closed. The schools were closed. Uh, none of our friends were there. Everyone had either gone to the Hamptons or in Florida, and um, or some people were living in Aspen. And we basically said, you know, this doesn't feel like the place to go. So we said, let, let Florida. We 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 honed in on. I joked with Ivanka. I said, look, I know we're about thirty years ahead of schedule because most <laughs> old people end up here anyway. Del Boca Vista. Uh, exactly. But it felt like a place that. Um, that had the energy of the future. And so we come down here and we said, look, if we don't like it, we'll put the kids in school, has a very nice Jewish community, um, then uh, we'll go back to New York, you know, in the fall. Uh, we came down and we just fell in love. I mean, it, it just, first of all, the, the weather's great, the energy's yeah. great. What, what really surprised us, though, was the people, right? So uh, right now you have people from uh, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, uh, New York coming down, but you have an original crop of Miamians who are also phenomenal. Yeah. Everyone's coming together. When we were coming up in New York, it felt like a city that had become great over the previous decades people had fought to make it. Here you have people coming together trying to create a great city. They're all uh, very invested in doing things civically, socially. Uh, we've made a ton of amazing new friends. Uh, it's, I call it sometimes like it's like freshman year of college where it's like everyone's like, you know, creating new friend groups, trying new hobbies. Right, uh, right. You know, when you go to... Um, you know, with your kids, you have uh, activities, taking them fishing, taking them boating, 
Uh, so it, it's just a very creative place. And then what I find is everyone comes through. So what I loved in Washington was that, I mean, the local community were like jackals because it's a one industry town. Right. But the uh, the you always had very interesting people from business, from from uh, you know from intellectual just passing through, trying to influence in one way. Here you have an amazing community, but you also have a lot of people coming through. And then what I find is that it's a very tolerant place, and that you could be at dinner with people very liberal, very conservative. Everyone wants to learn from each other, and, yeah. and I find that it's it's a it's a place where people don't take themselves too seriously. Everyone's doing interesting things. Everyone has interesting stories, and the lifestyle is amazing. So that that that's been our experience so far. I I, I know that you're also converted as well. There um, is nothing that I can possibly say right now that my audience has not heard me say about <laughs> Florida. I, I, did I repeat a lot of it? Your was, talk? It yeah. was pretty much yeah. That's it's it's pretty good here. That's yeah. that's the point. And it must feel kind of refreshing for you guys in that regard that you're you're sort of out of the political thing, and then you get to build something in a place that seems to represent some of the ideas you were trying to get across to the country. Yeah, we, we, we don't miss it. And I will say too, like, you know, Florida, and again, it's been interesting that it's becoming this big Republican epicenter now, the, the free state of Florida, but it's it feels like it's more of like a freedom-driven Republican, like a no judgment. Uh, I think a lot of the future of what I think conservatism can be, uh, and again, the one thing I'll say too, I'm very hesitant to use labels, right? Yeah. I learned that like, we're we're basically a two party country right now, but Democrats and Republicans, like they're each a collection of tribes more than they're like ubiquitous parties. Mm -hmm. But I feel like here in Florida, it's just a lot of uh, people doing creative things and and a, a lot of fun people. So it's it's been a lot of fun to be a part of it so far. Well, thank you for coming down to our local studio here in Miami as the you are the first guest in the local studio. Oh, you were actually the first guest oh, in I the guess local I, studio. Yeah, so. Technically, I was the first guest yeah, in my so studio. Yeah, I, so I watched that one. You Good did great. Good to see you, my so. man. Thank you, Dave. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to The Rubin Report. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. If you're looking for early and exclusive content, you can join me on Locals at rubinreport.locals.com.